I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. This episode is sponsored by The Great Courses Plus, a streaming service with an extensive library to learn about military history or pretty much anything else that interests you. Visit thegreatcoursesplus.com warriors for a free month. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Today, we're hearing from Dr. John Heavey, an emergency room physician who began his medical career as a battalion surgeon with the 101st Airborne Division in Iraq. Even for a podcast all about war stories, John's stories are intense. You'll hear some graphic descriptions of wounds and of combat, as well as some strong language. If that's not something you want to hear, you might want to skip this episode. You know, we were in Iraq with uh, the 1st 502nd Infantry, 101st Airborne, and we were operating in some fairly dicey areas, Kadamiya, Shula, up by uh, Sadr City area. Um, and yeah, that day, the convoy actually got hit right as they were coming back into our base with uh, an IED that obliterated at least one Humvee, if not two. Thankfully, I wasn't in that convoy, but I heard the blast. You pretty much know when it's going to be go time and, and oh shit, what's happening. So uh, just based on the proximity of the blast and the concussive wave, you know, and, and what was happening, we got prepped and we knew that badness was on its way in. The one gentleman in particular who I ended up seeing later at Walter Reed he had, um, you know, shrapnel deformities through his um, popliteal artery. He was concussed severely. He didn't know exactly where he was. Although, to the Army's credit, he still knew how to say sir, which is always remarkable to me when somebody can't remember their name, but they'll say sir. He was in a pretty rough spot. And when you're in that kind of proximity to a blast, you also are at risk of developing something called blast lung, which is a... Secondarily, you know, somewhat delayed presentation, but you get pulmonary edema and respiratory distress from the uh, concussive waves and the air pressure of the blast. So when he came in, we, we knew he was in a rough spot. He would be, you know, medevaced to a higher level as quickly as possible. We were at a level one facility. So while we had Initial resuscitative equipment, we didn't have an operating room per se. We didn't have sterile field. We didn't have things of that nature. So, frankly, the NCOs and the medics and the team that I was working with, those guys are, they're the miracle workers. They're the A-team. And I'll never forget, Sergeant Logan was running with cap over his shoulder through <laughs> through gravel that had to be foot, foot and a half deep, right? Just like a freaking superhero. And when I saw him with, you know, the body draped over his shoulder, I thought, oh shit, here we go. Let's figure out what we can do here. And um, he was in rough shape and the guys did what we do for, for trauma patients. And it was obvious that he was probably in the toughest shape of anyone who was surviving. 
and he was bleeding out from the popliteal artery and was altered mentally. He, he didn't know where he was. I wasn't sure if he was going to be able to protect his airway. I was concerned he was probably going to develop blast lung in short order. And all those things are just, you know, clinical medicine. I think the part that really gets you is you were just at the dining hall with this guy, you know, bullshitting with him and, and watching AFN on TV. And so now here he is with um, his life on the line. And thank God for the NCOs and for everybody, the PAs and, you know, folks who were mobilizing the helicopters to come in to get him out to the operating room. You know, we tourniqueted him as rapidly as possible, which is a big change from the standard civilian resuscitative acronym used to be ABC, Airway Breathing Circulation. And Iraq really changed that. It went to CABC, meaning circulation and hemostasis first, so people don't bleed out, and then airway breathing. Um, anyway, uh, I'm rambling a bit, but I'll never forget, you know, we, we got the tourniquet on him and he's screaming in agony because uh, the tourniquet hurts like hell. It's that, you know, you're threatening his limb by cutting off the blood supply. Uh, and then we packed the wound with HemeCon and some other hemostatic agents and you don't have a chance to, you know, numb anything up. And then, so here he is getting these hemostatic agents shoved straight into his body and he's still conscious. So we were wrestling with how do we, you know, do we protect his airway now and put him down into a medically induced coma? Or is that something that where we wait for the medevac? And anyway, this is all more clinical details than anybody would really be concerned about. I just remember the way he looked and uh, I was scared to death he was going to die. And that's that's what it amounted to. When you say hemostatic agents, you're talking about taking your fist and jamming a pack of something as deep into a wound, as close to the ruptured artery as you can, right? I mean, you're making it sound a little more sanitized and sterile than it is in real life. Yeah, no, it's it's ugly. And those agents oftentimes uh, have a heat component to them for the coagulation. So after you stuff it in as hard as you can and you're holding pressure on it, you can often smell the blood as it's cooking and the tissue that's cooking around it. But, you know, that's what has to happen. So that he ended up surviving and um, actually kept the leg, which was amazing. Was working back stateside at Walter Reed and was in the ER one night and the guy came in and he said, you know, he was having pain in his leg uh, and he was having some other issues and I didn't actually even recognize him at first. He had probably put on 25 more pounds of muscle. He looked fantastic. Last time I had seen him, his head was shaved and he was ghost white. He was on the verge of dying and he was screaming and it was utter chaos. And then as I'm looking at him and I'm looking at his wounds, I thought, well, that's weird. This, this injury looks exactly like the one that we packed at Justice. And then I took a look at his name tag and I said, oh, wait, I think this is Cap, you know? And uh, so I asked, you know, started asking, I said, wait a minute, were you at FOP Justice? And he's like, yeah, yeah. I was like, did you get blown up right outside, you know, the 
fucking gate? And he's like, yeah, yeah, that was me. And I said, oh my God, dude, here we are on the other side of the world. I was your battalion surgeon that day. I mean, he was obviously in extremis and completely concussed. He had no idea who I was. Yeah, I'll never forget it. It was it was the most amazing moment I've ever had. The vast majority of the time, you're not really challenged in terms of thinking through what's the right thing to do uh, in a, any given circumstance. That being said, you will, on occasion, uh, encounter challenging situations where you kind of have to think through, okay, what's the right thing to do here? For instance, I recall seeing an enemy combatant in Iraq and he had been shot um, in battle and was brought to our base as a casualty of the battle. And he had a you know very serious um, gunshot wound in the chest. And, you know, had we not intervened, he almost certainly would have died. So, you know, the medical hat uh, in me at that point was pretty clear. We got to take care of the guy and do everything we can to try to resuscitate him. That being said, it's not always an easy thing to sort of separate yourself from the emotion of that moment, uh, knowing that, you know, this individual very well may have uh, just taken the life of one of my, my dear friends. It is a different series of consequences for you when you're, when you're treating your friends. For instance, in residency, it's more of a, more of a job, frankly. You're, you're working long hours and you're getting terrific training. But then when you know the person in front of you, it changes your perspective on the situation because you, you aren't detached like you normally would. It's not just throwing a couple chest tubes and, and intubate the patient and move on. It's a person you know in front of you looking up at you uh, with their life on the line. So that, uh, that definitely ups the stakes in, in a big way. Um, at the same time, it was also probably the most fulfilling medicine I ever had the chance to be a part of. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. I know all of our listeners are curious about history and about the world. So I'm really excited to tell you about The Great Courses Plus. It's a streaming service with a huge library of classes on pretty much everything you can think of, including military history. And if military history is your thing, you might be especially interested in the course Decisive Battles of World History. It has some amazing insights into the battles that have changed world history. And it's not just about the battles themselves, it's also about the people involved, the events that led up to those battles and their aftermaths. 
It's so easy to use the Great Courses Plus app, and you can watch anything from their extensive library anytime and anywhere. They even have courses on playing chess, training your dog. The options really are endless. And right now, our listeners get a free month of unlimited access to the entire library. Visit thegreatcoursesplus.com slash warriors to sign up for a free month. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash warriors, and the link is in our show notes. Now, back to Warriors in Their Own Words. You know, there was a major convoy on its way through some sector in, in Baghdad. And yeah, anybody who's been on one of these convoys know that once it's rolling, uh, it ain't stopping for shit. And that includes when a motherfucker jumps out with an AK-47 trying to shoot at some massive piece of machinery, right? Like an M1 Abrams or whatever, you know, is in this convoy. <laughs> like a civilian hears about an AK-47, you're like, holy cow, an AK-47 over there, it's like, what is this idiot doing, right? Like, the convoy director, it's like a nuisance for him. He's like, damn it, dude, just go home to your wife and kids and take your AK away. We don't want to have to deal with you. And he kept persisting with, you know, small arms fire and blah, 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 blah. So we, we took him out. They killed him. And then the convoy proceeded as convoys do. And uh, they just ran over the dude over and over and over again, which is probably a violation of the Geneva Conventions, but um, who really knows in that sort of setting? And he became known as Pancake Man. And so it became a part of the lore that, hey, if we have to call in a raid on this house or if we're doing this operation, well, you go two clicks, he's a Pancake Man. And then because it's not like you got you know, ODOT out there to, to clean up the mess. And it's just totally morbid and disgusting. And I am embarrassed as a human that I, that you laugh at it. But at the same time, it's like, I don't know what you're, how you're supposed to react here. It was like boredom that this guy brought an AK-47 to try to kill people. And then it's like, dude, just go away. We don't want to bother you. You're kind of being a little bit of a nuisance here. You just go away and then, well, sorry, I guess you're making your decision here. Um, so anyway, yeah, that's Pancake Man. At the end of the day, no matter how much the, the cynical humor gets you through things from time to time, I really think that there was a sense of idealism for what people were trying to do. Um, and they were generally trying to do the right thing. And you start to realize the scope of what's going on over there and, and you recognize, wow, even though I'm in the middle of this, I have such limited capability to actually influence um, a positive outcome here. But that being said, um, you know, I know my guys in the platoon were very dedicated to, to bettering the lives of the people around them. And one of the things that we tried to do is we took on this notion of the medro or the, the medical rules of engagement, which were quite restrictive. Um, you basically couldn't intervene in certain situations unless there was acute loss of life, limb, or eyesight involved. Unfortunately, that translates at the ground level to, well, wait, we got a kid who was in proximity to a blast who has severe burns and disfiguring burns all over their body. The 
first do no harm is, well, yeah, you got to get the kid help. I mean, that's the point of the mission here, right? Like hearts and minds, ostensibly, like that's what we're here for. What could be more critical than taking care of a, a wounded child? And, you know, the combat support hospital did in many cases work around that to make these sorts of things happen. But the fact of the matter is that it was, there were just such massive issues that you had to take it one step at a time for what you could do within your sector to try to impart a positive impact. And that's why we created the foundation that we did and and why we started just evacuating some of these kids when we could. So the military is a massive machine that is designed for destruction. The State Department, on the other hand, has resources for reconstruction. And you fall in the mix between those two within medicine where you come in with this idealism that you think you're going to be able to help a whole lot of people. And then you realize, holy cow, this is such a blunt instrument from a policy perspective that the Iraqis who get caught in between in their day-to-day existence have some really terrifying outcomes that happen. And that that creates a real conundrum from an ethical perspective and from a medical perspective. I remember the, the visual of, um, of my buddy's body just being severed in half. And uh, you see plenty of trauma as, as a civilian ER doc, or you think you see plenty of trauma, but you never know who the person is in front of you. Um, and as I sarcastically said, you know, at the time, because I had to go in and declare mechanisms of death, you know, this gets back to the black humor. Like what the fuck do you want me to say his mechanism of death is blown, the blown to fucking shit, like severed in half his leg up in a tree and his arm across the base, like <laughs> mechanism of death. Yeah, blown the fuck up, you know. Like I just always picture some bureaucrat somewhere who's got to fill out the SGLI forms or whatever's involved, and I'm supposed to, you know, calmly write in exsanguination or blast trauma or some scientific-sounding term, and I always wanted to just call it what it was, you know, obliterated and fucking eviscerated with his his <laughs> uh, his his brain gelatin exposed you know there there's your mechanism of death uh exposed brain gelatin how about that and it is what it is um it's a part of the part of the job and it was um i think in many ways uh, the single most important thing that you had to, that you had to do um, this is somebody's loved one. And not only is it someone's loved one, you, you have the thought in your mind of Jesus Christ, they don't even know, you know, they don't even know that the worst news humanly possible is about to come their way on the other side of the world. The, the news that they dread. And then we try to figure out how do you make a rational decision for, for the family then, you know, 
do you do you keep the parts of the uniform that are charred and soaked in blood and, and you know human flesh like no no i don't think they'd want to see anything like that but it's not who am i to say this is their loved one you know um so i think it was probably the biggest um i don't want to say cherished i'm having trouble coming up with the right word for it but it was the most serious responsibility that 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 we took because these were our brothers in arms and we knew that their families were going to be hurting in an awful way. Um, so that, that day in particular, it had been a rough week. We had had a lot of brownouts, which is sandstorms coming in. And when brownouts happen, the protective eyes in the sky aren't anywhere near as effective. Um, we used to have different mechanisms, whether they were predator drones or, these um, sort of Goodyear blimp-looking things that were bulletproof that would fly up over the sector and keep an eye out for bad actors. And so anytime there was a brownout, you knew you didn't have Big Brother watching out for you overhead, and the casualty rates would go up. And we had had a number of brownouts that week, and we had lost a couple of guys during the week. Um, That day in particular, I just remember hearing a, a dull thud off in the distance and um i can't tell you how fucking sick of that sound i am because you you just you know what it is and there isn't a there isn't a fucking thing you're gonna do about it as much as you you know like to think that you can train with all these medical techniques to resuscitate someone and whatnot when the ied goes off you're dead instantly it's pretty rare where there's somebody who was not in proximity enough to be instantly killed. Uh, and so when you hear this dull thud off in the background, you think, oh, shit, you know, who is that? And I'll never forget that one of the guys that was that was killed in that dull thud was this, just this prince of a kid. I mean, a kid, you know. Honestly, I don't think he even shaved. He had just turned 18. And I'll never forget he had talked to me during basic, you know, about an advanced surgical training program at at freaking Northwestern University, right? Like, this is one of the top medical training programs in the country. It fast-tracks you to, you know, a surgical career. And he was already thinking, okay, hey, how is it that I could use my time here in the military, get in with the GI Bill, stay focused on becoming a doctor and getting into this top flight program? And it was such an aspirational, you know, inspiration that that he had this outlook and this upward trajectory for his whole life uh, laid out in front of him. And then just one dull thud and he was blown the fuck up. It used to be, you know, our job to go out into the canister, the railroad canister. I don't even know what to call it, a refrigerated bin. It looks like the things that you'd see on a a big shipping freight or um, a railroad bed car. And, uh, you know, we had one that had a generator running 24-7 to keep it cold. Um, That's where we kept the bodies. And, you know... We, we 
cynically called it the death bin because uh, everybody knew that's where the bodies are. And we'd go in and try to figure out who they were, you know. That was always the conundrum, too. I mean, guys used to freaking joke about it, you know. If I get blown up, put Theron's dick on me, all right? I want to go out with style. <laughs> like, how do you say that, you know? Like, so you piece the bodies back together as best you can. You declare a mechanism of death, uh, something other than blown the fuck up. Uh, you know, pneumothorax or, yeah, I don't know, uh, traumatic brain injury or these other things. Yeah. I remember wishing, just wishing with all of my Irish anger, just pissed me the fuck off that there were these rich old men back home making bank off a war while my buddy, I, I don't know if I can say his name, but Albert Bitten was his name. So there I am looking at Bitten's body trying to declare his mechanism of death, knowing full well that there's however many old, rich dudes making money off of his death. And it just filled me with rage because they, those policymakers, those contractors, those people that are part of this big giant machine, they need to spend some quality time in the death bin. Not in terms of, you know, being injured. That's not what I mean. I, I mean, they need to spend a moment in the death bin so that they can see what these decisions look like for the young men who carry this out, who carry out the mission, and whose lives can get snuffed out in instantaneous blink of an eye. You know, I, I also remember when we took mortar fire that day, I was really confused from mortar fire. I know that sounds weird, but from a sensory standpoint, it, it happened almost in reverse. Like, you know, you see in a movie that there's some big explosion and everybody sees it. And then, you know, this wave and they duck to get out of the way and everything. And that's a bunch of nonsense. You know, I was coming out of the shitter. <laughs> I was coming out of the shitter and I heard some sound overhead and um, had no idea what it was until I felt heat and the pressure wave from it. And then I looked up and I saw this huge ball of flame. And then I heard the explosion from it. Um, the explosion was last, you know, it, it was like it unfolded um, in reverse. And it just makes you think like, when your time has come in the bad luck lottery in a combat zone, your time has come. There's no anticipation. There's no way of knowing it's instantaneous and it just comes out of nowhere. And I oddly try to take some solace in, in Bitten's death, knowing that he didn't, he didn't see any of it coming. Um, he didn't hopefully experience pain in any significant fashion uh, beyond a nanosecond of the dull thud. And anyway, yeah, I'll, I'll never forget that death bin. I'll never forget the gratitude that I have for the boys and the men who served over there 
and uh, kept me safe. And I'm, I'm grateful every day for all the blessings that are in my life, uh, thanks to the sacrifice that they made. But at, at any rate, yeah, you know, the transition back is is a challenge for, for everybody. Um, I think as a doc, I had resources and blessings in my life that were a lot more supportive than uh, a lot of the guys that I was over there with. But um, it's definitely a difference. And within medicine, a simple example, you go from taking care of your young buddies with blast trauma um, who you're working to resuscitate and get back into a living that they can exist with um, to civilian emergency medicine, which is often, you know, an 80 year old coming in from a nursing home who thinks that Nixon's the president and you got to sort of, you know, adjust your mindset for what you can do. And, and um, you get nostalgic for, for the time that you had with your friends. The things that you've been through over there together as, uh, as battle buddies and brothers in arms, it, you've literally risked your lives together. And that sort of camaraderie, I think, is what is, you know, a once in a lifetime type experience. I mean, that's why my, my dad was, you know, he was a swift boat guy in Vietnam. I'll never forget, you know, we visited his battle buddy for 40 plus years. You know, um, and that sort of closeness, there are some, you know, areas of civilian life where you, you go through things together and you, and you do feel a bond. But uh, there is something about literal life and death situations where you know that you have to rely on that person with your life, where there's just no way to recreate that. That was Dr. John Heavey. John is now an emergency room physician serving on a different kind of front line in the battle against COVID-19. To hear him talk more about that experience, tune into his episode of our other podcast, Burn the Boats. Burn the Boats is an interview podcast where I talk to political leaders, activists, and other history makers about current events and difficult decisions. You can find it wherever you're listening to this episode today. Next time on Warriors in Their Own Words, we'll hear from Colonel Bill Guerra. Colonel Guerra was the commanding officer of the 1st Engineer Combat Battalion of the 1st Infantry Division from North Africa to Omaha Beach in the Battle of the Bulge. Make sure you follow the podcast to get that episode in your feed as soon as it's out. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. It really helps other listeners find the show. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Senior producer is Isabel Robertson. Audio engineer is Dave Douglas. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade 
acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.